You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Today's podcast is sponsored by The Morning Navigator a daily newsletter written by Tony Greer, who is a 30-year veteran trader in the financial markets. Now, we know that I would not accept a sponsorship for this podcast from a product that I could not endorse myself, and I do find this product to be really powerful. It's important to be responsible with your personal finances and investments, and you cannot do that without understanding the markets. Now, this is where The Morning Navigator comes in. If you're trying to find actionable trade ideas or simply educate yourself about the markets, then this publication will help you do both. Whether Tony writes about the Federal Reserve driving the stock market, Saudi Arabia affecting the price of oil, or why the software sector is breaking out, his hit ratio for filling me in on things I should know about is extremely high. Now, if you want to try out The Morning Navigator, then you can sign up for a free trial today at tgmacro.com. That is tgmacro.com. If you enjoy the free trial and want to subscribe to an annual plan, then you can get $100 off your first year of subscription by using the discount code ZUBI at checkout. You won't be disappointed, so go check it out and sign up for your free trial today at tgmacro.com. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, not for the grand, stunt me a destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam, put some respect on my name. Sick like a pain, click and I bang, y'all gon' remember the name. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. Now, on today's episode, we are going to be talking all things Bitcoin, and who better to do that with than the host of the Stefan Levera podcast and also the co-founder of Ministry of Nodes. And of course, this is Mr. Stefan Levera. How you doing, man? Hi, Zuby. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, it's an, it's an absolute pleasure. So I've just done a brief intro right there, man. So please introduce yourself to the audience and to anyone who does not know who you are yet. For sure, yeah. So I'm mostly known in the Bitcoin world as a Bitcoin podcaster. So my role is essentially I interview and I take an Austrian economics lens to this as well and then also do some of the more technical interviews within the Bitcoin world to try and help Bitcoin uh, users and holders and developers and other people in the Bitcoin ecosystem stay informed and stay up to date. And so my podcast has become a bit of an educational resource for many people within the Bitcoin world. Uh, and so in terms of my background, I initially I was like a, I was a chartered accountant. I studied some IT stuff as well. Most of my career was actually an internal audit. But then uh, a couple of years ago, obviously, I was really interested in this idea of Bitcoin and that's what drew me into this whole world. And now I'm actually more full-time into the Bitcoin world, if you will. So mm -hmm. in terms of my background, I came to this more from a libertarian perspective. Uh, but over that time, I've learned a little bit more around the technical components of Bitcoin as well. So that's a little bit about me. 
Awesome, man. And what got you interested in Bitcoin to begin with? You said you came at it from a more libertarian perspective. So firstly, how and when did you first hear about it? And what drew you into it to the stage that it's now essentially part of your full-time career? Right. Uh, so the, like most people, the first time you hear about Bitcoin, you, you kind of disregard it, right? So mm-hmm. for me, my first time hearing was, I don't know, maybe 2011, 2012 sometime. But then the time that I actually like sit up and you know, I sort of really uh, stepped up to the idea of, well, okay, this Bitcoin thing is real. I should look into it was yeah. in December 2012, right? So I was on a family holiday and uh, in uh, Sri Lanka, my, where my family is from, the roads are really terrible, right? So it takes forever to get anywhere, right? So I'm just sitting in the back and I'm just scrolling through and I found this random article and it was by Eric Voorhees, right? So he's a well-known guy within the Bitcoin world and he wrote an article and it was something like a, an intro uh, to Bitcoin and he spelled it out exactly why uh, we should be interested in Bitcoin, right? It's got this really scarce cap on it uh, and he explained in that article a lot of these concepts around how it could actually challenge central banking. And mm-hmm. so to me, being skeptical of central banking that was just like from then on i was just hooked i just had to go and learn i just had to basically tell everyone who would listen about bitcoin and so that just kicked off that journey for me so basically late 2012 early 2013 is basically the time that i really got into bitcoin that's cool and so it sounds like you really got into it sort of because of some of your pre-existing i guess almost socio-political and economic views One thing I found really interesting with Bitcoin, regardless of when somebody discovers it, but whether or not they kind of get that eureka moment and it clicks for them, I've noticed that it does seem to be quite strongly based on their political and sort of economic views. So for some people, the idea of having a decentralized currency that's not run by any bank or nation, that appeals to them so much. Whereas with other people, that totally freaks them out as in they're like, but it's not run by a government. So how can it be? How can it be real? I can't be worth anything, et cetera. So, and to someone from your own perspective, you're almost like, that's, that's kind of the point, you know, (laughs) that's the point. Exactly. So what, what were your kind of pre-existing thoughts? I I heard you mention central banking and being skeptical about that. Um, What led to those views to begin with? Right. And so for me, I had been a long time student of Austrian economics. So I had already read a lot of these different texts. Uh, A good one is Murray Murray Rothbard, what has government done to our money? And so we are naturally more, those people who come from a more Austro-libertarian view, right? Mm -hmm. A libertarian view informed by the Austrian school of economics. Can you, can you just explain what Austrian economics is for someone who's never? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so the Austrian School of Economics was named after some of the initial practitioners who came from Austria, but now some of the more well-known practitioners are in the US. Mm -hmm. And essentially, it is a free market school of economics. It's focusing on the actions and decisions made by individuals. And so Austrian economists tend to emphasize the bottom-up spontaneous order nature of the world and of markets and how people interact. Mm -hmm. And so that puts a a big contrast between a more mainstream school of economics, such as the Keynesian school of economics or the Chicago school of economics, where they in some way or another believe that, for example, the supply of money should be centrally managed in some way, shape or form. Whereas an Austrian economist is more skeptical of that idea. And they believe that that actually causes negative impacts for society, right? It means things like, it might cause distortions in society. It causes bubbles colloquially, right? So we yeah. might have seen, you know, the housing bubble, the dot-com bubble, right? And so for these reasons, Austrians are skeptical of central banking and that imposition and that, uh, that intervention into the normal market for money, mm-hmm. right? And so an Austrian might contrast with, say, the charterlist view. So the charterlist view is more like top-down, I'm the king, I'm the state, I'm telling you this is the money of the land, everyone has to use that, right? And counter to that is a more Austrian bottom-up understanding of money, which is more like it just evolves from people naturally selecting the best medium of exchange. Mm -hmm. And part of why you would select a better medium of exchange is one that is more saleable, it's more marketable. 
right? And so when we sort of start to understand some of these ideas and then also around why we hold money, right? We hold money because of uncertainty, right? So if I knew exactly in six months, these are the liabilities that I will have, I might put something into a six months, you know, term deposit and it'll come out exactly, right? But mm-hmm. the, the reality is I don't. I might get in an accident tomorrow and I've got to pay for my hospital bills. Yeah. That's why, you know, I save some money. So anyway, bringing you back to this whole idea of Bitcoin and why Bitcoin is so special, it's that it's almost a proof or it's almost like we're seeing it play out in the real world, right? Over these last 11 years or so that Bitcoin has been around, that people can opt in to this new form of money. And it's just radically different to every other form of money that we've ever seen before. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, it's been programmed to be even more scarce than gold, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's really interesting because then you start to think about, well, okay, what's the potential return, right? If this thing is more scarce than even gold or it's, it's going to become that once mm-hmm. the um, algorithm kind of sets the new supply to be even more scarce in terms of the new amount of Bitcoins coming in, mm-hmm. then, then those people who want to, let's say, speculate on that future adoption, then there's a real case there for that. And then there's two parts of it as well, right? So you don't necessarily have to be like an Austro-Libertarian who, you know, is not about central banking. You might just be a person who is a privacy advocate. You want mm-hmm. to be able to use Bitcoin. Uh, you want to be able to spend in a private way. Maybe you want to buy a VPN. Maybe you're a journalist and you live in, you know, you're a journalist in a tyrannical government country, right? And you need a way to transact outside the control or the view of that government. Well, mm-hmm. then again, these are all examples of how you don't necessarily have to be a libertarian, right? Or you might even think of it like, hey, my family needs to flee the country. What's an easy way to do that? Well, people can buy Bitcoin and then literally leave the country with 12 words memorized in their head. And you know, then it basically, it just, it just changes the game in yeah. terms of value and value defense, like defense of your wealth, right? Against a tyrannical government or against mm-hmm. uh, other people who might want to take that from you. Absolutely, man. No, that, that makes uh, total sense to me. I mean, when I discovered Bitcoin, I looked into it properly several years later than you, but I was drawn in by very much the same reasons. I mean, I, I was sold, once I understood it, then I was sold on the concept very quickly, in fact. And I was kind of kicking myself for not looking into it properly when I'd first heard of it. Uh, several years ago, my initial thought. <laughs> we all have those yeah, stories, yeah, man. man. I, my initial thought of it was, I thought it was some sort of like in-game virtual currency or just some sort of PayPal type of thing. I, I didn't, you know, I just hadn't really looked into it. I just heard the name Bitcoin, Bitcoin here and there, like, you know, maybe once every couple of months. And then it wasn't until 2017 when I really, really looked into it. And I was like, whoa, like I, I just got drawn into it, just got got hooked in that regard of the of the whole concept. and. Um, I'm a little bit of an evangelist for it now. Probably not to the degree you are by running an entire podcast, but um, <laughs> I, do, I do have a whole song about cryptocurrency, which is, uh, which is interesting. I don't think too many rappers do have that. And I also accept, oh, it, on awesome, my, yeah. <laughs> and I also accept it on my website. So we, we've talked a little bit more about some of the sort of sociopolitical and economic implications of Bitcoin, but I'm sure there are going to be some people who are listening to this. I've got a, a very broad audience. So you're a Bitcoin expert, but there are going to be people listening to this who have probably heard about it, but don't really know what Bitcoin is. So in layman's terms, to someone who's not a techie, who's not like an economic expert, anything like that, how would you explain what Bitcoin is? Okay. Okay. So I would say there's two parts to this. One part is Bitcoin is a token, right? It is a monetary unit. And then the other part is think of it like a payment network and a protocol. So there's two parts. And the confusing part, unfortunately, is that they're both called Bitcoin, right? So Bitcoin, the value, like the token, right? Like, you, you know, like you've got dollars and cents and Bitcoins and Satoshis. And each Bitcoin is divisible to 100 million Satoshis, right? So it's like dollars and cents, Bitcoins and Satoshis, right? Or Sats. And then on the other aspect of it is the protocol. And that is the part that is designed to be what we call trustless or it's hard to be it's censorship resistant it means i can spend i can send money to you and there's no intermediary who can stop that Mm. right and so that creates it opens up a whole new world of commerce and it's like this idea that you know one way i've heard it explained is bitcoin is the money of enemies right so even if you, you know people hate each other they can pay in 
Bitcoin to each other in such a way that they don't have to trust a central bank or a central ledger. So think of it, Bitcoin as a ledger of the transactions of every transaction, right? And when you run the Bitcoin software on your computer, that's what it's doing. But then what it's doing as well is it's also using cryptography and hashing in such a way that you don't have to trust a central party. And Mm -hmm. part of the reason for that is every time people tried to create a money outside of the state, it just got shut down, right? You got Liberty Reserve, eGold, all these different attempts and they all got shut down, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not that... it's not that it's a more efficient way to do things. It's mm-hmm. just that it was designed in a way to be resistant to you know, any individual, any company, any government. And so it's been designed in this way to be very resistant to that outside control. And yeah. so that is in a nutshell why uh, it's sort of been designed in that way. But in terms of how to think about it, I would think of it like this. I would think of it like it's a savings technology and a payments technology. And it's just like a really incredible savings technology and payments technology. And another uh, aspect to sort of layer into that is that you might not necessarily use it as your first choice, but it's always there in case other options are not available to you, right? As yeah. I'm sure you are aware in this you know, PC world, people are getting deplatformed and debanked all the time. Mm-hmm. And you know, companies like Gab, for example, set up to take BTC, and so it's, it's a payments option of last resort, right? And yeah. the other part of it is the savings element of it. Now, yes, Bitcoin is obviously very volatile, but mm-hmm. people who've held for a longer period of time and people who take a long-term perspective on this, they can think of it more like, this is like a longer-term savings. And if I uh, store some wealth inside Bitcoin, then over the longer term, then I may speculate on a future mm-hmm. rise. And in the history of Bitcoin so far, basically everyone who's held for any reasonable amount of time, they've ended up in profit. Yeah. So that's historically accurate. Mm-hmm. Now, the way we think of it is more like you've got to look at the long-term game of how this plays out. Because if you save into US dollars or into pounds or into Australian dollars, you are losing money over time thanks to inflation. Yep. Uh, and then even if you buy gold, it's not as easy to send that around the world at the click of a, you know, just like, like you might send an email. Whereas Bitcoin sort of has the benefits, it sort of has the best of all worlds in that way because it's so scarce that it it is more reliable in that sense, right? If you hold one Bitcoin, you know you have this set fraction out of the total, there'll never be more than 21 million Bitcoins. Mm. Whereas... uh, And can you you explain that to people? Because a lot of people don't understand the fact that Bitcoin, a lot of people are confused by this idea of having anything that's digital that is not infinite. So I have found when I'm trying to talk to people about Bitcoin or explain it to them, they get very confused and puzzled by this idea of it being limited. Can you explain how Bitcoin is scarce? Sure. Yeah, that's a difficult uh, part to understand because it is a new thing, right? So up until now, people are used to things like BitTorrent, right? Like if I've got a PDF or an MP3, people can just copy that and send it around the world. But Bitcoin uses cryptography and this network and this ledger of transactions to create that scarcity Mm. and so using cryptography and using some of these techniques like a private key and a public key and what we call a digital signature so again i don't want to get too hard like too into the detail right but the basic way to think of it is if you have the private key for something and your bitcoin software manages this for you if you have the private key you can sign the transaction in a way without revealing that private key and the system has been set up in such a way that it's hard to uh do that signature like really really like basically impossible to do that signature unless you have the private key Mm -hmm. but then once you've done the signature it's easy for everybody else to verify that yes you really did have that signature to spend this bitcoin from this address to that address Mm -hmm. and so can think of Bitcoin like a push system, not like a pull system, right? So you sign a transaction to push Bitcoin to another address. So I could, you know, if you had a QR code, I could scan that and my Bitcoin software would sign it with my, you know, think of it like my password almost. Mm -hmm. And then it will spend that into an address that you control. And that's one way to think about Bitcoin. Now, in terms of the scarcity aspect of it, it's been coded in such a way that there's a set limit. And it's been coded on an asymptotic schedule, if you will. So the amount of new Bitcoins being mined halves every four years. Mm-hmm. So 
every 10 minutes on average, a new block is created and some new Bitcoins are mined or created into existence okay. at that time. But then every four years, that's halving. And so by the year 2140, that's when we'll see basically the last piece of Bitcoin, I think, come out. And it'll be basically for some technical reasons and a few other things, it'll be actually a bit less than 21 million, but let's just call it roughly 21 million. Sure. And so that's in a nutshell why Bitcoin is scarce. And it's also that it has a certain network effect around it, right? It's like someone could copy paste the code of Bitcoin, yeah. but you can't just kind of copy paste the network of Bitcoin. And that's really where the value lies, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. The, my next question was actually going to be, um, about the value, because what I'm trying to do is uh, sort of put myself into the the mind of someone who is just first hearing about Bitcoin and thinking what some of the core questions will be. So a lot of people say, "Hey, Bitcoin! Bitcoin is not backed by anything. Bitcoin has no value. What is the value of Bitcoin? It's it's like tulips. It's just a bubble. It's a Ponzi scheme. It's a scam." When you hear things like that, what is your response to it because those yeah, are very common sure. criticisms both from kind of the general population but even from some you know high level investors or financial magnates some of them are very much on board with bitcoin and can understand the value proposition whereas other people um and you know these are intelligent people successful people some of them just think the whole thing is some super elaborate scam so why is it not Right. Yeah. And that's a, what I would call that is like a, almost like a category error, right? So a lot of people are coming to it from this traditional investment mindset. And in that traditional investment mindset, you're thinking, okay, if I'm buying a stock, well, I want a dividend. I want dividend return and there'll be a capital gain appreciation on my stock. Mm -hmm. Or if I'm buying bonds, there'll be a coupon payments and then the face value of the bond. Now, what we have to do is understand that money is sui generis. It is its own category it's not necessarily meant to derive a return in the same way that a dividend or a bond you know like a dividend from a stock or a bond from you know the interest payment from a bond mm -hmm. it's actually there to be a medium of exchange and there's a reason for that the reason being we tend towards the most saleable commodity right so think back you know how how could this have evolved well it's because we had this problem in bartering with people right like i might have like a bicycle and you might have you know cows or whatever and cow meat is more easy to sell than a bicycle because more people you know need meat than my bicycle yeah. right so you know how would i have um been able to get value well i would have found some medium of exchange mm -hmm. and so that is this concept that we would have coalesced towards now historically this is gold and silver and so people would have just gone towards that because that they knew that this was the best intermediate good to hold mm -hmm. while they're still deciding what they need to purchase and so thing so the answer bringing it back to that idea of intrinsic value the austrian economist answer on this point would be something like there is no such thing as intrinsic value all value is subjectively perceived, mm -hmm. right? It's like beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So everything is subjectively perceived by you or me, by acting individuals. And then what it is, is why do we choose money? And yeah. part of that is it just evolves over time by being what we call the most saleable commodity. Mm -hmm. And so that is how we would think of it. And so in some ways, Part of the argument as well, it comes back to things like gold as well. Like if you went back a couple of decades ago, some uh, traditional investment professionals would say, oh, gold, it's a barbarous relic. It has no return. It's just a dumb rock. Why would I have it? Yeah. Same, it's the same argument there is why would people hold money? And that yeah. comes back to the uncertainty that we face. And so if mm -hmm. we have money, then I, I can now spend that when I need at the grocery store or whatever. And so the way a Bitcoiner is thinking about this is we view this like this is a long-term process like it might be a decade or two or even more mm -hmm. for this asset if you will to monetize and yeah. that is this process where the value is just going to have to shoot up dramatically mm -hmm. if more and more people adopt it and which we believe more people will because it's so much more scarce than anything else it's the first time we've really seen digital scarcity yeah and so that's why we think of this as like it's really novel and that's why we would say it's not a scam it's not about intrinsic value it's more about what are the monetary properties of bitcoin and are they superior to some competitor like gold or the US dollar, say. Yeah. Hope yeah, that makes absolutely. sense. Yeah, no, it makes total sense to me. I think a lot of the confusion stems from the fact that honestly, most people don't really understand money in the first place. 
or you know just what what a what a currency is because anyone who's traveled will know if i take my british pounds and i go to the us or i go to australia and i try to pay in them the shops will say hey we don't we don't take this this is not this is not legal tender here um and you've got all these hundreds if not thousands of different currencies around the world and then you've got places like um you know, I mean, if you look back in history and you see how people used to be paid, people have used salt, people have used beads, rocks, seashells, cigarettes. all kinds of things. Yeah, in prisons, people use cigarettes. So, so when I look at something like Bitcoin, and I think, th- I think there is a generational aspect to this as well. I do think that the younger generations, I imagine, who are really digital natives, I think that they're going to buy into the idea of something like Bitcoin far more easily and be far less resistant to it than the older generations. You know, there are, of course, people who are in their 50s, 60s, 70s who, who get Bitcoin and who are invested in it and everything. But um, I think that because it's so different, right, it's something that's just so, so, so different to anything that's previously existed, that it is kind of hard to just wrap your head around the concept, let alone the technology. I think it's a, I think it's a little bit of a big ask for some people to kind of be able to do that. But I do think that, yeah, like you were saying, talking about, you know, maybe it'll take a decade or two decades or even longer. I think that a lot of that shift will just happen with the next generation sort of coming up. Exactly, man. Because like the thing is, we think of the world almost like everything that was existing when we were born is natural and normal. And things that happen, maybe things that get created or invented after we're like 35 or 40. Oh, no, that's that's weird. I don't want that. Right. (laughs) And so you think of it like, hey, Bitcoin has already been around for 11 years. Think of all those kids who have been born from 2009 onwards who Mm. have literally never known a world without Bitcoin. And over mm-hmm. time, it will just be more easy to adopt and it'll just be like this parallel system, right? Yeah. So I guess that's another way to think of Bitcoin. It's like a parallel financial system mm-hmm. when you are not, you either don't have access to the normal financial system or you are not satisfied with the way that the authorities and the governments and the central banks are managing the financial system of the world, you mm-hmm. have this parallel alternative and it's opt-in. Nobody's forcing you to use it. Yeah. It's just an opt-in system that we believe is actually better and superior in some ways because think of it this way. Imagine how much easier, right? Like you're saying, well, when we've got to travel, we've got to get, we've got to change our money over and you've got to think of exchange rates as a good time to do yeah. it. Where when people go to like Bitcoin stores overseas, they just have mm-hmm. their Bitcoin wallet and they just pull out their phone and they pay with Bitcoin just straight away right there. Yeah. And that's one example right there where you can already start to see that we're, we're building this parallel system out here. And it also has in many ways a certain simplicity and ease to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, although I would definitely take your point there that it is a bit technical right now. And that's one of the difficulties with you know, a lot of Bitcoin people are trying to make it easier, but it's mm-hmm. just still early days because there's so much technology being built out yeah. and it just takes time for it to, you know, to have the iPhone or, or the, you know, the Gmail app of Bitcoin, right? I think that hasn't even been created yet. Where, But the flip side then is because it's a little more difficult now, there's more potential. There's more investment opportunity, right? It would be like if you could invest in some of these big public companies before they went IPO, before yeah. they went public, and you have a chance to get some now, right? Yeah, yeah. So people are going to be familiar with the idea of cryptocurrency in general. A lot of people have heard about blockchain. So Bitcoin is the first cryptocurrency. It's also the first blockchain. Um, Why do you think it is the best one? You said it's been around for 11 years now. You've got all of these other cryptos out there. Some of them are faster. Some of them are cheaper, smaller block sizes. Um, Lots of them have lots of things that could be perceived as advantages over bitcoin so why do you personally feel that bitcoin is the future why why is that the most important cryptocurrency when all these other new ones have come out great question and yeah i get this is a very common question right Mm. so some people might say oh but what if bitcoin is the myspace and something else is going to be the facebook and that's going to be the new thing right Mm. now one way to think of that is to understand bitcoin itself wasn't the myspace if you will there was actually a multi-decade history of cypherpunks and cryptographers and privacy activists who were trying to make this technology and there were many attempts prior and they failed right so you've got things or they failed or they never really got adopted right so you 
some of the predecessors or ideas that went into Bitcoin, things like Bitgold, uh, B Money, uh, and then some of the non-crypto versions, right? Like Liberty Reserve, e, you know, um, E Gold, and some of these other ones that got shut down. Bitcoin was kind of the first one that actually went big. And then now the other part is there's a certain network effect of Bitcoin and there are multiple network effects surrounding Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you've got speculators, you've got exchanges, you've got developers, you've got miners, you've got, uh, you know, financial instruments and products being built. And uh, kind of the final one is this idea of being like the reserve currency, right? And so we would say there is a certain network effect around Bitcoin that's just too hard to dislodge. Mm. And so what I, you know, the reason I'm skeptical on a lot of the altcoins and on things like blockchain technology is that they're sort of doing cargo cult, right? So I'm not sure if you're familiar, but I might just explain. It's, it's this idea that um, there were some islands, I think, in the Pacific, like during wartime when like US planes would come and land there and they might drop some supplies and things, right? And then after the war, those planes left, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then some of the island people thought, oh, uh, if I set up like a fake runway and like a sort of a hot thing and like a fake, you know, runway guy, maybe the, the planes will come back, right? Yeah. And they, they weren't sort of paying attention to the broader system and mm-hmm. why, how it was a cohesive thing that made sense into it. And so what a lot of these altcoin projects are doing is they're kind of doing cargo cult science. Right, they're kind of recreating some aspects of it. They're you know kind of using blockchains, or and they're often using like in some ways almost dishonest discussions about what are the security trade-offs that they made to get that right. So mm-hmm. they might say something like, "Oh, look, my blockchain is faster; it does more transactions." Mm-hmm. But they're not telling you they traded off a lot of security to get that, right? Mm-hmm. And so that is fundamentally why I think once you sort of again, it takes time to kind of dig through into the details of each one. Uh, but fundamentally, a lot of them are either more centralized. They're not properly decentralized. They have some kind of benevolent dictator or a foundation that can really control the direction of that altcoin. Yeah. Whereas Bitcoin doesn't have that. Bitcoin has no CEO, no comp- no, no uh, kind of head honcho in, in command of it, really. Mm. Uh, so that, those are the ways I would distinguish uh, Bitcoin against some of the altcoins. And one other point I would just make is that if you look back five years ago, right? So uh, there's a website called, uh, I think it's called uh, Coin Market Cap or something like that, right? And the idea is you can see all the different uh, cryptos there. Yeah. And what you'll see is if you compare the picture from five years ago to today, it's dramatically different. Mm-hmm. A lot of these other coins have flipped around and whatever, and some of them have just dramatically fallen and become irrelevant, right? Now, yep. some of them don't completely die. They just become yeah. irrelevant, right? And Bitcoin has basically just been the king all along. All 11 years, right? Yeah, exactly. And then not just that, if you want to buy something, you want to buy something that you think is going to last. Mm. And then if you want to develop software on top of it, you want to develop on something that you think is going to last, Mm. right? So that it all sort of coalesces to this point that we're all just kind of uh, coalescing around Bitcoin as the monetary network effect. And it's the king of the monetary network effect. And really, I would say we have to look at this as a money first and, and as the technology second. So mm. it's kind of what is the most saleable? Well, you want to be a part of the network that has the most other participants, but also having the one that's decentralized and also the one that has some of the like best tech, all, all things considered. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of my answer on that point. Hopefully that helps. Yeah, sure. So if you're looking at Bitcoin as the sort of main monetary unit or as a form of money or even a form of digital gold you're looking at it from that end what do you think about the room for other cryptocurrencies or blockchains for other use cases so using an obvious example you've got something like ethereum which um is normally the number two uh crypto in terms of market cap sometimes it swaps with a xrp i believe but um So I know Ethereum is basically designed in a a little bit, it's got some similarities with Bitcoin, but Ethereum is more looked at as a way to create what they call decentralized apps or dApps. So it's supposed to be um, tiering complete, a way of creating programs, essentially, not just purely being a monetary unit. So it has that aspect as being a currency but it's also something that's really more for the programmers and creating apps or games and things like that in the future. What do you think is the room for things like Ethereum and similar platforms? 
Right. And so for me, so again, everyone's got to do their own research on it, right? So don't necessarily take what I say. Now, I'm a lot more skeptical on Ethereum, right? Like I just think it's been oversold. I think Mm -hmm. it's something closer to like a science project that all these people just put money in. And then a lot of these early founders, they did a pre-mine, right? They gave, they basically gave themselves a lot of the coin, the, the coins. Uh, and now you might hear different justifications for that, but in my view, I don't think a pre-mine is justified. And now the other part around, you know, is there a role for things like smart contracting and decentralized Mm -hmm. applications, right? So potentially, uh, I guess that part remains to be seen. And it also remains to be seen if there are other technologies that can be built up on top of Bitcoin, Mm -hmm. or there may be there are ways that we can do that without necessarily having a blockchain and a cryptocurrency to go along with it. If that makes sense. So I think my view is more like let's get the get the money right first. And mm. I think what what we're seeing is almost like an overreach, right? So maybe some of these ideas might be viable in the future, but I just think what we're seeing now is like an overreach. We're trying to kind of we're trying to run before we can walk, right? Mm. That's how I'm sort of thinking of it. And I think what makes a little more sense is more like a just a traditional business that's just run using and interacting with Bitcoin, right? So for example, there are companies that will give you like a collateralized loan and you can put up Bitcoin and get back USD and your Bitcoin is your collateral, right? So that's, that's one example. Yeah. Um, and so I, I guess I'm a little, I'm not ready to kind of believe in that idea of the fully decentralized apps. I think part of that is maybe a little bit again of that cargo culting aspect that we were talking about that, mm. you know, certain promises you know almost over promises have been made and then the challenge then is how centralized are some of these other systems yeah uh, and so uh, i don't really yeah i'm i'm sort of a bitcoin only guy yeah, but yeah, yeah. again i am I'm, I'm not uh, i'm not perfect <laughs> i could be wrong of course right? yeah um, of course it's just your your opinion i mean you, yeah. i know earlier on you mentioned some of the censorship that's going on say on social media platforms and things like that so wouldn't that in itself be a pretty good sign that perhaps there is a need for more decentralized applications and websites and things like that where they can't just pull the plug on somebody because they don't like them essentially or they don't like their views or opinions or something they've done? Great. Yeah, great point. And so I would say those can potentially be done in a way that aren't necessarily a crypto or okay. cryptocurrency, if that if that makes sense. So, for example, there's that um, you know Gab. I think they uh, forgot the the name. There's, it's like a decentralized Twitter sort of network. But really, what it is, it's not like a blockchain. It's mm-hmm. actually more like federated servers. And then, so they are trying to somewhat quasi decentralized, but they're mm-hmm. not the same thing in terms of like Ethereum DApps, if that makes okay. sense, right? And so, one of the big problems with this DApp problem is that it fundamentally, it's just very computationally expensive, right? So Mm. in the example of Bitcoin, right, every node has to maintain the full list of every transaction. And so in Ethereum, they're starting to have this problem where it's very difficult for people to actually run a node because they're trying to run all the computation through this uh, through their little, uh, through their world computer, if you will. And that was one of the memes that was going around. Oh, it's the world computer, mm-hmm. uh, where that may not actually be the most computationally efficient design. And so it comes back to why was Bitcoin designed in this way? It's not necessarily because it's more efficient to do it this way. It's because it's more resistant to do it in that way. And so maybe there's a case there that, you know, it, we need things that like a, a more resistant form of Twitter, right? Yeah. Uh, um, but it's interesting now. I mean, we've seen recently Jack Dorsey came out with that idea of, hey, we want to do that with Twitter. And Twitter would be now a cl- one client mm-hmm. as part of this decentralized or sort of more decentralized protocol. But even there, it's not necessarily like a cryptocurrency and a blockchain okay. about it. It's just like a, a different architecture, you know, computationally. Yeah. Does absolutely. that make sense? Yeah. yeah, no, that, yeah, that does make sense. So it's basically creating, getting those same benefits without necessarily using the blockchain chain technology, let alone a cryptocurrency unit that would be a sort of, yeah, currency, essentially a monetary unit. Precisely right. Yeah. Yeah. Because it comes back to why were we using a blockchain to begin with, right? So So what do you think is going to lead to Bitcoin adoption? I'm going to give a, I'm going to give a a little story here, actually. In the past month, in fact, I've had, um, I've had two transactions with people overseas where they needed to send me um, a decent amount of money and we were looking for various options. So we looked into 
PayPal. And I think one of them, the PayPal fee would have been something like $70 just to send it. And then we looked at something else and I think the fee was $30 and it was going to take four days. And then my brain just went, oh, do you use Bitcoin? And he was like, yeah. He was like, what's your address? I was like, boom, five minutes, boom, done. Very minimal fees. I think maybe like $2 fee or something sent, done, just like that. And of course, I've been sort of invested in Bitcoin for a couple of years, but it was weird. That, that really simple use case and then that happening twice in a couple of weeks, that made me just be like, this is the point of Bitcoin almost, right? Not, not just this, but when people say, oh, there's no real world use case, there's no, there's no, like, why do you need it? You've already got all these other things. And I was like, well, if you want to send $2,000 from, you know, where you are in Australia to a family member or a friend in Sri Lanka or in the UK, surprisingly, they're still, I mean, outside of crypto, there isn't actually a great way of doing it. Um, there are different platforms that can do it, but even the ones that are relatively low fee, once you're getting up to $500, $1,000, the fees are still pretty significant. You know, a 3% chunk of a $2,000 payment, that's, that's a lot of the money that is, that is disappearing. And I think that as more people begin to work online and the world just becomes a little bit more international in terms of the way people are communicating and transacting and everything, I do think that the use case for that is going to become more and more apparent. I mean, I know I can't, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but the amount of global remittances that are sent on a daily basis, let alone on an annual basis is insane. So, so essentially for people listening, this is people who are working in one country and then sending money back to their family in a different country, which is very, very common in lots of places, you know, multi hundreds of billions of dollars we're talking about here, I believe. And with some of them, I mean, people may have heard of things like Western Union, and I think the fees can be up to 10%, right? You're sending, you're sending back $20,000 a year, say, and they're taking two grand that could be going to your family just for the convenience of being able to send money back. And it might take five days. It might take 10 days. There's this huge delay. It can get lost. And with something like Bitcoin, you can just, you don't need to go to anyone. You can do it from your computer. You can do it from your phone, send, receive, done. Very minimal fees, no matter how much you're sending. Because the fees, the fees don't vary with Bitcoin, no matter how much money that's being sent, right? Right. So they vary based on more like the size of the transaction. And some transactions might be really big and some may be really small, right? I think just recently, maybe even a day or two ago, there was literally a billion dollar transaction. And the fee they paid on that was like $84 or something like wow. that, right? Which is like <laughs> absolutely crazy, right? Yeah, so it just really opens up the whole world to a whole new world of commerce, right? Like you can set up and you can use this software called BTC Pay Server, which is a really good one because it generates new addresses for you and you can like plug it in with um you know sales uh woocommerce and so on and now anyone can do that right and people who might have only had access to their local economy before now they can sell particularly digital services online and mm. it's massive i think there's so much opportunity here it's just that these tools are not easy to use yet bitcoin is not that well understood yet mm -hmm. and and not enough people want to speculate on that yet, right? Yeah. But over time, that will come. And so, and, and I guess to your earlier point, you were saying, how do, people, how do more people get into this? I think it's not going to sound good, but part of it is greed, right? So people mm -hmm. see the price go up, right? So we see number go up, right? We see the price go up. And then that just pulls a whole new round of people in because they start thinking, oh, wow, I could get rich quick, right? And now... Bitcoin isn't really about getting rich quick. It's about getting free quick, right? It's about having a certain monetary freedom. But sometimes that is almost like the marketing of Bitcoin almost because yeah. it sort of kicks off this price run. And what we've seen typically is like four yearly cycles, mm -hmm. typically after a little bit after that, that halving we mentioned. Um, so basically, it's almost like people, some percentage of people get in, right? As they see the price running up. And now some people invest over their heads and then they get wrecked as the, the, you know, the crash happens. But then some small percentage of those people actually, there. yeah, exactly. And then some percentage <laughs> of those people look further into it and then they start yeah. realizing, oh, wow, it wasn't about getting rich quick. It was actually about having monetary freedom to begin with mm -hmm. and then rinse and repeat. 
And that's what we've seen over the 11 year history of Bitcoin is that we've had peaks, it's crashed. And then that's been like the new, then the new peak has been much higher than the last one. And so mm. it's, that's just been the pattern that we've seen play out. So that's my view on what we'll see play out over the next few years. Yeah, man. So w- talking about the future, I mean, where do you think the future of Bitcoin is going? I don't know if you're someone who does uh, price predictions, but if it goes the way that it could, say, in several decades, what sort of potential price level could a single Bitcoin reach? And how do you think it would be being used on a daily basis? Would it be a daily transaction currency or would it just be used as a store of value, something like gold? So people do currently own gold and silver, but they're not using it day in, day out. How do you see it sort of fitting in in the future vision? Yeah, so for me, I'm very bullish on Bitcoin. I think it's literally in today's t- purchasing power, I think it's going to be like above $10 million per Bitcoin, right? Oh, wow. Now, remember, okay. you can buy a fraction of a Bitcoin, right? Mm-hmm. So you can buy 0.001 of a Bitcoin or whatever, yeah. and we would don't, transact. Don't- don't gas me up with, with talking 10 million because I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm set. <laughs> <laughs> now, look, this is, this, you know, I could be wrong, right? But I think if it happens, it's going to be like multi, it might be 10, 15, 20 years yeah, before sure, we sure. even get anywhere near that range, yeah. right? Um, but that's where I think ultimately longer term it's going uh, because I just believe that it's just the hardest money the world has ever seen. Mm. And there's just going to be that tendency for people to go coalesce towards it, right? And so it's going to be seen as like the best possible collateral because it's like the best possible way of protecting your property, right? In a way that nobody else, if you secure it correctly, in a way that nobody else can really take from you. Whereas even if you're in a property today, the government of that land or that area can just basically smash you right they can tax you on property taxes or they could if you know maybe if you're politically unpopular or whatever they can take it from you like in Mm -hmm. like places like south africa where that sort of thing has happened so bitcoin offers this completely new and much cheaper way to have in some sense a property right and people want to take territory on that bitcoin blockchain so to speak they want to take ownership of a piece of that bitcoin and so my view is longer term we'll see big uh, Bitcoin banks and you, and there might be many, many, many banks and you might not necessarily transact directly on the Bitcoin blockchain because by then the transaction fees might have really risen because mm. Bitcoin's blockchain won't necessarily support retail transactions for the whole world. Sure. But there are scaling mechanisms in place and that's where you may have heard of the Lightning Network as one example. Mm. And then there are other ways where people might you know, go bank to bank, right? And so I might, my bank might transact with your bank and really our banks are doing it in the background Mm -hmm. because they're settling like an end of day sort of transaction or you know using the lightning network which is like another more kind of advanced uh, technology that uh, is being built out now and being uh, supported by people like jack dorsey ceo of twitter so i think that's kind of longer term where it might go people might use it as collateral as well so coming back to that idea that uh, it might be seen as a superior form of capital, uh, collateral. Mm-hmm. And so it might be a better way to borrow capital against, you know, to put that up against that to get a loan on it. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing that I see it driving is big societal changes. Like okay. I think part of why I'm into all this stuff with Bitcoin and anti-central banking is I think it's driven a lot of bad social consequences, right? So fiat money, inflation, these have driven this extreme market distortion We've seen bigger governments as a result of it. It drives this big centralization and it also drives changes in the way we even act, right? The way we interact, people have to, uh, instead of being able to save like in uh, in the past where they could have just saved up in gold pieces or whatever, now you are almost forced to invest in the stock market or the bond market because otherwise you're just losing Losing pace against inflation. And so now we're all being forced and pushed into this chase for yield because Mm. otherwise we're just going to lose against inflation. And Mm. so... Instead, you know, we would have a more sound money society. And so it, I think that would help. And I think even today, we're seeing a lot more kind of people feel meaningless, right? There's meaningless consumption. They, don't, they, you know, they work in some big megacorp and they don't feel a connection with the end result of their job, right? Whereas I think in a, more, in a, in a Bitcoin world, let's mm-hmm. say, there would not be as many, let's say, government subsidies of certain big companies and like things like intellectual property laws or call it even roads that subsidize, say, Amazon or the Chinese government subsidizing 
postal services and so on, I think we wouldn't see so many large mega corps and we would see more like smaller um, uh, businesses and people would feel more connection with the businesses that they work in. And we might see a little bit more entrepreneurship and kind of small to medium enterprise kind Mm -hmm. of work. Um, I think, and people would also care a little bit more about their own futures. I think right now we have very large welfare state and warfare state Mm. because the government is able to fund it through this kind of hidden tax of inflation. They're able to kind of raid the accumulated wealth of everybody instead of explicitly taxing you saying, hey, Zuby, I'm going to go to war. We're going to fund this. I'm actually going to tax you for that, right? If If they explicitly did that on everything, it would be much harder for them to tax people. So I think what we're going to see is a world of many smaller governments and we might see like you know singapore's and hong kong's and Liechtenstein's and switzerland's and just a, me- a world of many of those and they're a bit smaller governments and people would be able to live a little bit more easily because right now for example housing is really expensive it's not yeah. cheap and i think part of what's driven that that big social factor is actually un artificially low interest rates driven by fiat money so yeah. i think there's a lot of these under it's like people don't understand that because these are like symptoms and I view it like the root cause of that is central banking central and banking, government yeah. intervention in the money. So yeah. that's, that's why I think we're going to, you know, over this next 10, 20, 30 years, we're going to see a shift towards that. And, mm. you know, there might be times where it's not easy, but I think fundamentally that's just the direction we're going. How do you think governments are going to respond to that? I mean, obviously as someone who's libertarian minded, we, we, all, we know that uh, governments don't really like relinquishing their power and their control. So how are they going to respond to this? Do you think they'll try to buy up the Bitcoin? Are they going to try to squash it? What, what do you think? Because I, I understand the sort of vision there, and it sounds good, but putting on my realistic thinking cap, I'm like, man, well, governments aren't going to just let that happen, let alone in countries like the UK or US or Australia, but you know, China and Russia and the Middle East and places where the government is even more authoritarian. How do you see that kind of playing out? Great question. And so I would say it's, it's sort of like monetary economics overall, right? Mm. I think what's happening is society is just going to have to bend and shift to adapt to Bitcoin. And I know that sounds kind of crazy, but let me articulate a little, a few points on why. So firstly, government employees, the government is not a monolith, right? There are individuals inside that government and they have what's known as the principal agent problem, right? So you might, as a government say, oh, we need to stop this Bitcoin thing. But then you personally, if you've Mm -hmm. actually gone and gone down this rabbit hole and you've understood more about why Bitcoin is a better money and it's harder money and all this stuff, you would want to hold some for yourself, right? Mm. You'd want us to hold some for your own family, right? And so it's going to become difficult for you to hold Bitcoin yourself and then also act in your official role as a government person or a bureaucrat or a regulator or whatever yeah. to try and kill Bitcoin, right? Now, yeah. the other part of it is it's, inter- it's jurisdictional competition. Mm. We will see some governments that maybe do come out against Bitcoin and that might short-term push the price down. But I think long-term, they can't. it's just too hard for, for, for it to be killed, right? So yeah. even um, the, some US... Uh, government politicians have said there's no capacity to kill Bitcoin, right? Like they've literally said that. And so I think what we'll see is a begrudging acceptance and a begrudging kind of diminishing of the role of government in the same way that maybe hundreds of years ago, the church was kind of like the government and now the church sort of, its power waned a little bit. And I think in the same way, the state is going to, you know, governments are going to have to wane a little bit in power and they will have to be more like a proper service provider. Right. And so the way I see it transitioning happening is people might at first go to say a challenger nation, you know, like sometimes a challenger brand will come out and try and offer a new feature. Mm -hmm. I think in the same way, like a small or medium nation might say, Hey, this is an opportunity. We want the Bitcoin people to come here. We'll Mm -hmm. give you a tax benefit or we'll say like, you know, no CGT, no capital gains tax on Bitcoin or low tax. And that'll pull people in. And then that will sort of give them a massive opportunity to become wealthy. Mm -hmm. And then other companies, other countries will just have to compete from a tax perspective. Yeah. And, you know, I think it, it just, it just, it's just too hard to stop this thing. So mm-hmm. people will either set up where they are and just do a BTC pay server and just take payment mm-hmm. or do commerce with Bitcoin just in this own little parallel world, or they'll go to a low tax jurisdiction. And then over time, I see it like governments will have to shift away from 
income tax and they may shift more to something like property tax. I mean, I don't know. I'm speculating a little bit there, sure. but they might have to shift away from the current methods of tax and they might move to something like, okay, Zuby, you earned this house and we're just going to tax you for like a, a percentage of that as opposed mm-hmm. to income tax. And so gotcha. I think they might still exist, but in a different format and in a smaller, um, more, you know, in a way that they actually serve the consumer, they serve you and me and uh, everyone else, rather than right now where they have this power over us that we can't really say no, right? You can't unsubscribe from the government service, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. With Netflix, you can, right? It's yeah. kind of like that. So it's time to move to Malta is basically what you're saying. <laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> uh, look, well, I mean, there's a lot of places, right? You've yeah. got Singapore, no capital gains tax. Switzerland, yeah. no capital gains tax. Um, Germany, I think after one year, if you hold for one year, there's no CGT. So there's a few, there's a few potential places that you know, awesome. it could come up. That's cool. And besides that, are there any other sort of, what are the major threats or obstacles you see to Bitcoin and or its adoption? Well, one part would be around if people don't come in respecting the real values of Bitcoin. Like one of the values of Bitcoin, if you will, amongst the Bitcoin community, if you will, mm-hmm. is this idea of don't trust verify and this idea of taking personal responsibility and accountability, right? Because if too many people come in and they don't necessarily understand what it is they're doing and they're not running a Bitcoin node and they're not holding their own private keys and Mm -hmm. so on and like taking the right steps around security backups, then that may impinge the decentralization of Bitcoin. So maybe that's a potential, like if people don't understand what's important and what we're fighting for here, uh, in some sense, mm-hmm. that might impinge or that might slow that might slow the adoption of Bitcoin. Uh, there could be some catastrophic bug in the code that we don't know about, but even then, there's a lot of people reviewing the code of mm-hmm. Bitcoin. Um, the, I think potentially, it, let's say a government were to come out really strongly against Bitcoin, that might temporarily slow the adoption, but I don't, I don't believe it would stop adoption because yeah. it would just push it elsewhere. Which has so happened think, before, by yeah. the way, right? Like a couple of years yeah. ago, I think China cracked down on it pretty hard. And that yeah, so that was really funny, right? Because yeah. you saw this whole narrative of China banned Bitcoin again, China banned Bitcoin again, and it just yeah. you know, it just I think after a while people just stopped caring because it was like, oh, okay, you banned twenty seventh time, yeah. okay, big deal, right? And so you know it, there will be like, and here's the other point I would make: is that sometimes we as humans have this tendency to place our own narrative onto things, right? It's like when you see the short term news cycle and the journalists come out and say, oh, the stock market rose because of whatever, this guy got assassinated by the US government or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. We're trying to almost place a reason onto things when really, if you think more from like a Nassim Taleb, fooled by randomness. We're just fooled by randomness and we can't actually understand what's going on. It's just like a longer term process. And so you have to really think through more like, what is, a, what is better for the long term and what's going to be a more scarce and better money in the long term? And that for me is where, where I sort of bring it back to Bitcoin. Awesome, man. Dude, I th- this has been a, a fantastic podcast. I think anyone who's listening to this, uh, hopefully they've had a lot of their questions answered. I'm sure there's going to be some people who are already into Bitcoin who are listening, but just given statistics, I'm sure the vast majority of people have probably heard of it, but aren't into it or invested in it. But I do hope that this conversation has really helped to enlighten everybody about what Bitcoin is all about and just how potentially powerful it is. I think the potential of Bitcoin is totally insane. And as someone who is obsessed with the idea of potential, just in general for the world and also on an individual level, then um, yeah, it's definitely something that people should read up on. Are there any books or resources that you recommend beginners should check out? Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of stuff that I'm involved with, uh, your listeners can check out my podcast. They can mm-hmm. find me at stefanlevera.com. And then the other one I've got is ministryofnodes.com.au. So stefanlevera.com is like the podcast. And that's where I've got a lot of interviews with mm-hmm. Bitcoin developers and economists and so on. And then ministryofnodes.com.au is where we do like educational, you know, we teach you how to do Bitcoin, right? How to store yeah. your keys, how to run your Bitcoin node. Um, and then I guess just a couple other general resources I would recommend. Uh, look up the Satoshi Nakamoto Institute. There's a lot of great great primary source literature there. Um, I, I would say read The Bitcoin Standard by my friend, Safe Dina Moose. I've mm-hmm. also interviewed him on my podcast. So that's a really good resource as well. Uh, so yeah, I would say there are a few of the resources that uh, a listener should check out. Awesome. Stefan Levera, thank you so much for coming on the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. It's been great having a conversation with you, man. Oh, it's been a pleasure chatting with you as well, Zuby. Thank you for having me. All the best. 
flame, sticking up destiny for fame. Do for the fam, not for the gram. Stunt me a destiny for pain. I do not front, I do not scam. Put some respect on my name. Sick like a bang, clicking a bang. Y'all gon' remember the name. Y'all gon' remember the name. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.